Paleo nerds. Two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds. Because deep time will blow your mind. David, how do you do, sir? <laughs> I'm doing good. Uh, what's it like? Is the rain let up in Ketchikan? You know, <laughs> it has not been. It's it's taken its toll on the troll. I gotta say, I, I look out every day and I look at the iPhone, the magic phone, to see if there's a little ball of sunshine in the 10-day forecast. And there is. They put one there and then they take it away. So. Yeah. So how many feet of rain have you had? I don't know where we're at. I think we are about to set a record, though. Hey, but, you know, actually, we're still suffering through the pandemic, you know? Yeah. Um, so we're still supposed to stay inside. I keep hoping that we can have a sunny sunny day for a barbecue. But, you know, I, I was thinking about this pandemic thing, Dave, in terms of deep time. Right. If there had been a viral extinction on the planet, how would we ever know? You know, I've heard theories before that maybe it was a virus that took down the dinosaurs. We now know it's, we're pretty sure it's a comet. I mean, the scientific consensus is it's a, it was a comet 66 million years ago. But I recently, I remember a couple years ago, there was a virus that hit the sea star community, starfish, as they're commonly called. And within a year's time, basically all of the large sun stars disappeared they dissolved up and down the coast and weren't they taken over by sea urchins well they 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 dissolved they basically disappeared so i have not seen a sun star i do hear that there's a little bit of a comeback now but that's how those are the big huge starfish with the really big arms. ones so yes they they just disappeared and the, the well, virus I just read an article that it's possible that a supernova and gamma rays caused the extinction at the end of the devonian and you're asking about a smoking gun with a virus. What they have found is certain isotopes that are only produced by supernova found in the Devonian-Mississippian boundary. Yeah. That was an interesting paper. And when you're talking about finding gamma ray evidence of supernova from a star 65 million light years away. Sorry, 65 light years away. So I don't know. Yeah, finding evidence that a virus took animals down or it took the planet down, it'd be interesting. We should talk to somebody sometime. Huh? Okay. All right. Well, uh, then here's one for you. There, okay. I just sent you a link. Someone asked on uh, one of the Facebook dinosaur groups, what is the first evidence of mammalian hair? Yeah. And it turns out to be, in the Permian, evidence from coprolites. So dinosaur poo... There's a paper out that shows there are eggs, there are parasites, there's bone, there's teeth, and there's evidence of the first hair, which are long, hollow tubes, hair-like size. Wow, that's really cool. But one thing, David, sorry to correct you again, you can't say dinosaur poo from the Permian because there were no okay, dinosaurs. you're right, you're right, you're right. Okay. <laughs> Rob again, Dave. They're called um, cy cyanodonts. No. What are they called? Yeah, I think something like that. Cynodonts. 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 Cynodonts, yes. Okay, what was the great sail back Dimetrodon from the Permian? 
Dimetrodon and Edaphosaurus. Uh, but anyway. What kind of a creature was, was that, well, that, that was, guy? Uh, what sometimes it called a mammalian uh, reptile. Okay, let me see if I can clear this up. The cynodonts, which mean dog teeth, were smallish to dog-sized four-legged animals that probably sported hair and whiskers and first appeared in the late Permian around 260 million years before cheeseburgers and cell phones. They belonged to a group called the Therapsids within a larger group called the Synapsids. Cynodonts were once very diverse, but modern mammals are the only synapsids that didn't go extinct. So here's a quick breakdown. Synapsids have one hole in the skull. They include the ancestors of mammals and mammals themselves. And here is a fun fact. The hole in your mammalian skull is where your cheekbone is now. That's right. Diapsids, on the other hand, have two holes in their skulls, like dinosaurs, birds, crocodiles, lizards, snakes, and turtles. Oh my. I know that's a lot of apsids to remember, but hey, we're getting there. So basically, we're talking about reptiles way back when that had hair, huh? They're hairy, hairy lizards. Well, I don't know if they had hair, but they found it in their poo. So whatever they were eating. So well, that's interesting. Wow. Okay, so we're going to be talking to uh, a really cool guy, but I kind of have a bone to pick. Do you? Before we, we talk to this uh, amazing paleontologist. What, with me? Kind of. Well... You once told me all about Desmostylians, yeah. which are these hippo-like aquatic mammals that lived two to five million years ago. We're going to ask our guests about the, the time range. All along the Pacific coast. Yeah. And I think they, their range covered the entire Pacific region, even in Japan. Yes. So you're talking that they're pretty much the Pacific. The North Pacific, to be specific. See what I did there? <laughs> Anyways. Anyway. What's your beef? And yeah, well, so you, you were like, all oh, these are the most coolest things, and they're just awesome. So you took me down to the Cooper Institute down in Orange County, uh -huh. and we saw actual Desmostylian teeth, which are absolutely crazy. They look like sushi rolls. We'll talk to our guest about that. But you went going off on how cool these things are, and, and honestly, what? they're boring. What? They're boring. David. They're big and they're fat David. and boring. Oh man, this this that hurts. Okay, but that but I am ready but, to but, be changed, and I'll tell you why. You went on and on and on about the ratfish, and I could give a rat's ass about a ratfish <laughs> until we interviewed Dr. Dominique Didier. That's right. And she opened up the world to me of ratfish and how amazing they are and how ancient they are, and. I changed my view because of talking to her. Well, you know, it is hard to explain an obsession, uh, a deep, deep abiding interest in these weird creatures, but I'm glad that you came along, Dave, and hopefully I can change your mind with a little help, a little backup from our guest, Gabriel Santos. Uh, he's down in California, I believe. He shares the love of Desmostylians. In fact, I dubbed it Desmophilia. You can feel the Desmophilia. So he's a Desmophiliac <laughs> like me. So thank you for tolerating my interest in ratfish. You came to believe. Hopefully you're gonna come around on this one too, huh? Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to uh, having a change of heart today. <laughs> it's up to Gabe, oh man.
Now, Gabe is uh, working at the Raymond Alf Museum. Yes, I believe so. He's the collections manager. Yep. And he's doing a lot of really cool scientific outreach. He does. And uh, he's co-authored some papers on some uh, pretty awesome crocodilian finds. Oh, really? All throughout, yeah, all throughout uh, the West Coast. I didn't know there were crocodiles in California. Really? I did not know that either. Well, there are some in handbags on Rodale Drive, but that's another <laughs> yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. Shall we call him up? I don't know if you can tell, but I'm doing just that right now. Well, Ray, we have an amazing guest today. He is the collections manager at the Raymond Alf Museum of Paleontology in Claremont, California. Please welcome Gabe Santos. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Good to see you too. Are you a paleo nerd and how did that start for you? I'm definitely a paleo nerd, but I wasn't always a paleo nerd, actually. Um, you know, like most kids, I liked paleontology growing up, but I didn't really want to be a paleontologist until I got, uh, after I graduated my undergraduate degree. Um, originally, I was doing uh, pre-med. I was thinking I was going to be a medical doctor, but then... Whoa. Uh, yeah, I changed my mind about that after I graduated. Six more years <laughs> of school. <laughs> yeah, like for me, it wasn't, you know, as fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. I'm much more passionate about, you know, like storytelling and education and science in general. And medicine wasn't exactly doing that for me. So after I graduated, I kind of also had like a little bit of a, a personal meltdown because I was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Um, so I quit all that. Um, and then uh, I rediscovered paleontology as an adult um, after visiting the American Museum of Natural History, actually for my birthday. In New York? Uh, I, in New York, yeah. I saw the uh, giant Paraceratherium they have on display there, the giant rhino. And oh, that, yeah. yeah, that fossil like just blew my mind because- Now like, that's a sentence mammal that huge rhino with a giant massive horn like almost half the size of its body sorry um the paraceratherium is the giant rhino from mongolia Rob again dave so it's it's like imagine like you take a rhino but like pull all of its limbs and its neck really long that's what the paraceratherium it's probably oh. uh, also called like indricathere so that was your moment like that is so cool and suddenly what was it about it? Yeah, what was what happened there? I'm sure people have heard the story before, but I was standing under the fossil in the hall for like, I don't know, 15 some minutes, just like in awe of how big this animal was. And then also I was like, wow, somebody had to like figure out exactly what kind of animal this was. Someone had to like dig it up. Someone brought it to the US. They put it together in an exhibit. And then someone like created this beautiful exhibit to like talk about it. And so all of those just really like checked all these... uh tick marks in my head of, I want to do that. I want to tell a story of a fossil. I want to learn about them. I want to find them. I want to work in a museum. And so as I started thinking about it, I was like, maybe this is what I want to do. Maybe I want to work in a museum. So as soon as I came home, like I think within two weeks, I started volunteering at another museum here in Southern California. Um, it used to be called the Cooper Center um, in Orange County. And then from there, after uh, volunteering there and then eventually working there, I started my master's program at Cal State Fullerton with my advisor, Dr. James Parham, who was the curator at the time at the Cooper Center. And while doing my master's, the job here at the ALF Museum opened up for their collections manager position. And so I applied for that um, within like, I think a year into my full master's program, <laughs> kind of not just like, yeah, let's try it anyway, who knows? And I got the job actually. And wow. so yeah, that's how I end up here at the museum. That's well, awesome. All of that, like I started doing more educational work and science communication stuff and realized like that's where my passion was. 
Isn't it true that collections, the back rooms of museums, have more stuff than you see displayed for the public? Oh, totally. Like, most is... For a lot of collections, what you see on display in a museum is like anywhere from 1% to like maybe 10% of the collection. Most right. museums, your collections are stored in the collections room. And there's like reasons for that. You rarely, rarely get to see the full extent of any museum's collection. Hey, Gabe, uh, we, we met at the Cooper Center all those yeah. years ago, maybe about 10 years ago. You say it's no longer called the Cooper Center. And what is the Cooper Center? It's the repository for all of Orange County's fossils and archaeology um, material. Uh, it's still there. It's just the repository and the, the research room is still there, like the main site. It's just not the same kind of program as it was before. Ray, you took me there. It's a really cool kind of place and that it's sort of a kind of secret warehouse looking building. It's not really open to the public, but every time you dig a hole anywhere in Southern California, pretty much you run into ancient creatures and by law, they have to go into a collection somewhere. And so this warehouse, correct me if I'm wrong, Gabe, is just full of fossils, right? Oh yeah. It's such an untapped resource and the current paleontologists there now are doing really good work on like trying to you know bring that those fossils out and um, really make sure people are working on them and know about them what blew me away about the cooper center was these shed after shed of plaster jacketed fossils that had never been touched yet or, or opened yet and i asked the gentleman i said how much work is here he said generations of discovery was that me you were talking to <laughs> <laughs> Why is that actually is that what you say? Brought, yeah, that, that used to be one of my like taglines when I was working there. <laughs> I, I think this is kind of awkward, but I think maybe it was you, Gabe. <laughs> and uh, Dave doesn't quite know it. No, no, it was the uh, the elder the elder gentleman. Oh, I was the old guy. Older. Oh, okay. All right. You but and wait I, a minute. You and I were off geeking out on our animal, but anyway. yeah, we were talking about Desmostilians. That's this. right. Yeah. <laughs> And which brings us to the Desmostilian saga. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest, Gabe. Ray came to me a couple of years ago and was, there's these new creatures. They're really awesome. The Desmos, Desmostilians. And he showed me drawings. And then we went to the Cooper Center. And I went, boring. Oh. Gabe, 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 Gabe. So you have I'm, to turn me. You got to turn me. We've been having this argument. He thinks they're dull, man. So... Can you convince him? He needs to know about Desmophilia, the love of Desmostilians. Gabe, you got the floor. Go. Okay. So <laughs> let's start with this, right? Imagine, close your eyes. Imagine yourself in the Pacific Northwest, like 15 million years ago, right? Beautiful, beautiful weather, rocky beaches, the, the conifers everywhere. And you're on that beach. All of a sudden you hear like stomping, like, you know, thundering footsteps coming down the beach. You look over. And coming down the beach is this herd of this, these really weird looking animals. Something that looks like a hippopotamus in the ocean, but it's a little different. It's the size of an elephant, right? But its face is a little bit longer. And all of a sudden there are these weird amphibious creatures that you've not seen anywhere that are unlike anything there are today on the beach. And all of a sudden you look out into the water and there's bigger ones swimming, trying to eat kelp. There's down in the seagrass beds, whole herds and families of these animals that are unlike anything we know today, just living in this environment that is pretty much unimaginable to us because it's just not anything we know. 
So wait, and these so are elephant sized? Some of them could get elephant sized. Yes, yeah, they yes, had a indeed. huge range of sizes. So they also had these sort of massive hands and feet, almost like almost like paddles in a way. But there's been a lot of debate as to how they even managed to stand up because their 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 skeletons are so weird. There's been all these papers back and forth. And the Japanese have one view that they crawled around on their bellies, but uh, uh, we don't believe so. What's your What's your viewpoint on the uh, the, the the posture? Well, before you before you the viewpoint, do the do the legs and arms come out from the sh the hips and the shoulders, or do they come down well, from the, the hips debate. and the shoulders? So yeah, that's kind of the debate. Like there's, it's hard to tell because Desmostylians, their limbs are kind of turned inwards a little bit. So some scientists hypothesize that their posture was a little, a little reptilian, like kind of splayed out just a little bit, not like really crocodilian like, but just a little splayed out because of that weird turn. But you know, there are some other mammals who have that like um, polar bears, their rear legs are slightly kind of turned in a little bit and they kind of have that weird swimming posture to help them kind of paddle a little bit. And so for me, I think there's somewhere between like, like that polar bear looking kind of stance um, where they kind of use their slightly turned in feet for paddling. So but that's an I, adaptation for swimming. Possibly. I've not actually myself done research in that. So I'm just kind of hypothesizing based on my knowledge of Desmostylians, but that's what we do. That's what yeah. I do. <laughs> so, so yeah, they could, they lived along the shores and they were only found in the North Pacific, right Gabe? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's some evidence of them down near Baja, Mexico, but anywhere below that, we have no records of Desmostylians. And probably the reason is just because, you know, they were re reliant on those seagrass beds Right. And so they could only really exist where they are. But down in South America, they had their own group of marine grazing mammals in, in their seagrass beds. So 15 million years ago was the Miocene, correct? Mm -hmm. For once you got it right, Dave. What was the climate like uh, in the Pacific North? It was much warmer, for sure. And there were a lot more shallow seas and seagrass beds than there are today. Um, so kind of imagine like somewhere like in Florida where like manatees are or like the seagrass beds in parts of Asia in like um, the in like the Philippines where they have a lot of dugongs around. So kind of look like that. So tell us about the dentition. Yeah, they, they had the weird teeth and tusks. Right. So mm -hmm. what about the teeth? What's cool about them? Uh, oh, you did it. You did the definitive paper about the teeth, I believe, on uh, your one. Well, you did the paper on the ontogeny and the senescence. Yep. Senescence. Senescence of Desmostylis. Senescence. Old man, senescence. Wait, when wait, you get so old. what did I say? Senescence? <laughs> Some weird thing, man. <laughs> Incorrect again, Dave. Gabe, this is how we do it. We jump around a lot, but let's stick with the teeth. <laughs> it's all good. Tell, well, tell us what happens. So Desmostylian teeth are probably my favorite fossil teeth because they're just so weird. Desmostylians have the, some of the thickest enamel of any mammal. And if you look at them from above, they kind of look like a bunch of sushi rolls, like California rolls all stuck together. Um, and, you know, that's because they have that really thick enamel. And so um, in the publication I did with my advisor, Dr. James Parham and Dr. Brian Beatty, we were looking at kind of how their teeth change from a very young you know, baby to a very elderly adult. 
And so our hypothesis was that Desmostilians erupt their teeth and go through these different developmental stages based on where they are in their life and what they're eating. So like as a young baby, females would go into more estuarine freshwater environments to have their babies because it's safer. You know, there's less predators, shallow water. And so they're eating like freshwater plants. Things are a little bit softer. So their teeth are smaller. As they get older and they're not relying on their mother or and moving out into, you know, the seagrass beds, seagrass live in very sandy environments, right? So Desmostilian's teeth got bigger and more robust because they're eating the seagrass and then they are indiscriminate eaters. So they might be picking up seagrass along with sand and sand we all know is really bad for our teeth if we're biting it. As a former child, I've eaten sand before for some dumb reason <laughs> and I know that it's bad for your, if you've been to the beach and you open your mouth when it's windy, you know what sand feels like on your teeth and it's but bad. Is that an evolutionary response to eating sand, this incredible layer of enamel? It's possible. We don't really know the answer to that yet. And do you have any evidence of what they ate as far as coprolites or uh, their environment that their fossils deposition in? So there are paleontologists who've done isotopic analysis. That's basically looking at like the different isotopes in their teeth based on what they're eating. When plants take in carbon and oxygen from the atmosphere, um, they take in certain types of isotopes. And so you can use those isotopes that get taken in by the animals that eat the grass that get incorporated into their teeth to figure out when and what type of environment they're living in. So some paleontologists who've done isotopic analysis on Desmostilian teeth saw that there was freshwater environments and also estuarine environments where there are probably seagrasses. Wow. Some fossil evidence at teeth show that, you know, they found some crab parts in some teeth and other, oh, really? you know, wow. um, uh, like sand or what they called microware and stuff. So they're seeing all these different evidence that are trying, that are like pieces of a whole story. So you're using like broken pieces of evidence to reconstruct the story of what these Desmostilians were eating. So back to the sand thing and not enjoying sand in your mouth. They're <laughs> grinding away using these. I've seen some of the tusks, which are almost elephant-sized tusks that jut out of their head and they interlock in the front. But your what? paper... What? They have two tusks sticking out? They have, they have two tusks on the top, two tusks on the bottom. So they're four, like, oh. so like a four-tusk walrus. Some of these tusks, especially in the one specimen you looked at, look like a dinotherium, an elephant kind of uh, creature with the big lower jaw. How long? How long were they? Well, like, okay. like maybe like a foot. Some of the things I've seen at the, at the uh, Smithsonian collection are massive. But your paper in the senescence, as they got old, they literally ground their teeth away completely? Is that what yeah, you that's what we're Yeah, that's what we're looking at. The specimen that I looked at at the Cooper Center was just really weird because it had no teeth whatsoever. No. Wow. It didn't have any of the alveoli or the tooth sockets, as we call them. They were, it was just, it looked like it was completely edentulous. But it was weird because for Desmostilians, which are known for their teeth, how can you have a Desmostilian that didn't have any teeth and didn't have any evidence of teeth whatsoever? Wow, that's, that's, that's trippy. It ground them away, you think? Is that's, that was our hypothesis based on looking at like... Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Of they, don't have, they don't have toothbrushes. How do you know it isn't just tooth <laughs> decay of being old? Well, that's, that's what we were doing. We were looking at different Desmostilian specimens at different ages to try to put together this story. And so by looking at these different Desmostilians at different stages in their life, we came up where we were able to put together the story that Desmostilians, as babies, eat freshwater plants in estuarine environments, and they have much smaller teeth. 
as they get older, their jaw gets bigger, more robust, like it gets really thick, and their teeth get bigger too with thicker enamel. And our hypothesis for that was because they were moving into the seagrass beds where it's a highly silicious environment with lots of sand that's bad for your teeth and wears it down. But no matter how thick your enamel is, if you're just constantly grinding down your teeth, it's gonna go away. Um, some animals like elephants and manatees go through different sets of teeth through their whole life. Manatees just keep growing it forever, which is super- Really? Do they yeah. accidentally eat sand, manatees? They eat seagrasses and other types of vegetation as well. So it's an adaptation for just constantly growing their teeth and wearing it down. How many sets of teeth do the Desmostylians get in their life? We have sets of three adult sets. So the first molar pops up, it moves forward, then their second set of molar comes up. And I mean, as the baby, the first one? Uh, so as babies, basically, they have their premolars or their baby teeth. And so <laughs> those teeth. Those molars, <laughs> and then those come out. And then after the, as the premolars are lost, then the full molars come in and they move forward when the new set erupts in the back. So they have okay. their first set of molars, their second set of molars, and their third last very large set of molars. But even those last sets of molars get eroded and broken down and then eventually they lose their teeth completely, is our hypothesis based on the specimen we looked at. So because there was, quote, remodeling in the jaw, which means like it had filled in the alveolar sockets, it reshaped its jaw, its teeth were completely gone. That means this Desmostylian was able to live past losing its teeth completely. And so we were like, so how does this work? It can't yeah. be chewing on yeah. the seagrasses because it lost the it lost its kind of protection against that seagrass. So our hypothesis was at the same time, kelp were starting to appear in the fossil record. And also ah. at this time, there were other types of marine mammals that were adapting to eating kelp, like Hydrodamlus questi, which is a relative of the stellar sea cow. And the stellar sea cow is, is edentulous as well, right? Wait, just define edentulous? Without teeth. You and I will someday be there sooner than Gabe. <laughs> Hopefully. So, yeah, I don't, I don't want to keep these. Well, this is really fascinating, man. I So they lived without teeth, but they had these sort of big, flat kind of spaces in their jaw do they not they could still kind of clamp down on stuff or or suck kelp or what are they kelp suckers well that's what we were trying to figure out but we didn't really get that far into the study it was just our hypothesis was that they were eating kelp because it doesn't there are other edentulous mammals that adapted to eating kelp because kelp is very soft. They can just kind of gum it. Um, and so that was the hypothesis we have was that they were able to survive losing their teeth by eating kelp, which were just appearing in the fossil record at the time. Wow. So when you say you have specimens of juveniles and you've got specimens of different stages of shedding teeth, and then you even have older individuals with no teeth, how many Desmostylian fossils exist are there thousands? Are there hundreds? Uh, do you have only one baby or 200 babies? I mean, what's the range and, of distribution? And how many species? There is definitely a lot of Desmostylian fossils. Their teeth are very common in like the Northern Pacific. They're a very common fossil. They're very common in Japan. Desmostylians are very big in Japan. They're big in Japan, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, like, you know, you've seen them, Ray, is like at the Smithsonian, they have a lot of great Desmostylian fossils here in Los Angeles and Berkeley. Um, 
So there are a lot of Desmosilian fossils. So there are thousands of individuals to study. For teeth, for sure. You know, more complete skeletons, I would probably go in the hundreds, but there is still a lot. And so for my research, I went, I studied the ones at the Cooper Center. I went to the Natural History Museum of LA. I went to UC Berkeley to study the specimens up there. And I got to use um, previously reported specimens from Japan and also from, what was it, Sakhalin, Russia? I believe is where some of the wow. specimens were from. So I looked at those papers and used that data to compile everything. I wasn't able to go to the Smithsonian yet for my for my research. For You're my starting study. to turn me. I'm starting to like these Desmos. They're, they're starting to sound really well, what, cool. What I, what I think is so cool is that people just like Dave. Never heard of them. Never heard of them. You don't know them. about them. How yeah. is it? They're, they're big in Japan. They were thousands of these individuals all throughout the Pacific Northwest and nobody knows about them. Gabe, what are we doing about this in the world, man? Well, wait, why? Why is that? Is, is this a recent discovery? No, no, we've known about them since uh, Copen Marsh. Uh, oh, really? Uh, Marsh described the first Desmostylus tooth. It's named that he's the one who named it. The thing is, is, you know, when it comes to paleontology, you know, the, the saying goes, every fossil is worth a thousand stories, right? But not everybody wants to tell the story, the stories of every single specimen. There's always going to be somebody who's more interested in something. For me, the mystery of this unknown, huge marine creature, and especially because I love marine biology, even when I was a kid, this huge marine creature that has no relatives today, that we have no comparison or proxy of, it's just such a mystery. And even though we've known it for so long, there's so much we don't know about it. Those questions just like really racked my brain. And I really wanted to learn more and complete the story of this animal. That's how I got interested what? in it. And there's what? even one group of Desmostylians called Paleoparadoxia. Yeah. It means ancient mystery. And I was just like, these are so cool. Why? And I want to learn more about it. Paleoparadoxia, prehistoric, we don't know what the hell. <laughs> I know, but why? What's so mysterious about it? You well, find actually, their teeth, yeah. right? And we just didn't, scientists just didn't know what they were. You know, they're like, is this a, is this a dugong? Is this an elephant? Is it related to elephants? We oh, really is, don't these know are, much this where they're related This is before it was to. described. Fully, yeah, before we found like really right. complete skeletons. But even today, we still are a little unsure as to who does or what Desmostylians are related to. I was going to ask that. That's my next question. What is their transitional animal? Well, yeah, we're, so this debate They've traditionally been thought of as being closer to elephants, but that's now think that thinking is being revised. Gabe, what's the latest on their? I mean, there's been a long history. They even thought maybe they might be related to uh, duckbill platypus. And yeah, I mean, seriously, like again, they're just so weird. They don't really match anything today, and they're marine creatures. So, and that's another thing to add to the weirdness. Um, you know, superficially they look like hippos, but they can't be related to hippos. They're just too far off. Could they be related to uh, whales? You know, Ambulocetus and all that? No, they're not an artiodactyl. They don't have any of the features that make them artiodactyl. What they do have are some features that look very similar to, um, like I said, dugongs and elephants, which are Afrotherians. So to, for a long time, Desmostylians are hypothesized to be relatives of the Afrotherians, the elephants and the dugongs. Now, artiodactyls have two toes, right? Yes, the, they have the even-toed versus perissodactyls, which have odd toes. And then the other thing you said was? 
Afrotherians, which are the elephants, hyraxes, dugongs, manatees. And what distinguishes that family? The Afrotherians are all a group of animals that originated in Africa and spread out from there. Um, and they have their own unique set of features that make an Afrotherian an Afrotherian. So an elephant is related to a hyrax? Hyrax, tenrax, dugongs, and manatees. Yeah. Elephants related to a dugong? Mm-hmm. Yeah, dugong is basically an offshoot from the elephant family. But, at, and that's another program there, Dave. But <laughs> now, from what I understand, and I talked to my fellow desmophiliacs, <laughs> they are now, and you are one, Gabe, do you buy into the theory that they are closer to horses and calicotheres and rhinoceroses? So yeah, that was that paper by um, Cooper et al., 2006, I think. And so their paper was looking at kind of relations of perissodactyls, I believe. And so they were doing a phylogeny. They're looking at all the different characteristics of these different groups of animals and kind of placing them on a tree. <clears throat> and so one of the animals they looked at that included was the Desmostilian. But within that, the Desmostilian kind of grouped within perissodactyl as a stem perissodactyl. So they're not within the crown group of perissodactyl. They're not within the group of all and, the modern... And define a perissodactyl? Yeah. Perissodactyls are the odd-toed ungulates. So right. like horses, rhinos, tapirs, calicotheres, things like that. And so Desmostilians kind of grouped as a stem perissodactyl. So they're like way at the base of the perissodactyls. Below the base. Oh, below the base, right. Okay, yeah. go ahead, Dave. How many fingers do they have? Desmostilians, they're... So... The thing is, is we can't base it off of that. There are other characteristics of perissodactyls that make a perissodactyl, right? That's just one of the defining characteristics. So Desmosilians are placed as a stem perissodactyl because they're not in that main group, but they do have some features that place them to be like kind of like a relation, kind of like a second cousin out of the main family, right? Mm. That's where you can think of as these Desmosilians. So that's what the evidence was saying from that paper by Cooper et al., the evidence was pretty good, but it also is not like super definitive, right? We're oh, still man. missing a lot of we're still missing a lot of the story. But do they have paws uh, with fingers, or do they have hooves? What what do they have? They they're swimming. They they're, they they are describe kind of like, the feet and hands. They kind of like have these weird paddle puppy dog like <laughs> hands. They're wide, <laughs> but they probably were standing on like splaying on them like kind of on their toes and supporting their weight on it kind of what an elephant kind of looks like this big huge metatarsals kind of maybe so as far as you're concerned the jury's still out we don't know if they're closer to rhinos and horses or elephants or do you have a an opinion yourself sir i yeah? don't have a i can't form an opinion without more data oh i love it man well, i was go gonna ahead. say it was just because i haven't actually done much research in a few years on things i, I know kind of moved on from it i know I, and now actually i was sensing that so i thought maybe a little twist to the conversation <laughs> here we've gone way deep into desmos and doxies as and i think you coined that term doxies the paleo paradoxies there's these great splits but yeah there are all kinds of species in general and i really think it's great but don't give up your love on desmos man Oh, I don't. Whenever somebody right. wants to talk to me about Desmosilians, I'm ready to talk to them. Okay. I am just not focusing like much research time on them anymore. There we go. What are you focused on now? What are you doing, man?
So now I'm a lot of my research is mostly focused on educational work, mostly focusing on utilizing paleontology and like storytelling methods and even pop culture to make science education relatable, accessible, and just kind of a lot more easier for people to want to be interested in. I saw your TED talk. Oh, cool. Yeah, no, that was really awesome because you're using cosplay to tell paleontological stories. Wait a yeah. minute. I'm a boomer. I what what the heck is what the hell is cosplay? Well, boomer, yeah, you just close your ears for a bit. Uh, <laughs> All right. No, I want to learn, man. What what's cosplay? Cosplay is the is like a term that comes from the words costume and play. And okay. it's where you dress up as a character from a comic book, movie, um, video game, any kind of like pop culture media and kind of play yeah. as a character. Usually it's done at like comic book conventions or pop culture conventions, but cosplay has become a huge subculture on its own um, really? nowadays. It's not what you do in your bedroom, Ray. Oh, okay. I thought... <laughs> Dave, you know about that? <laughs> what? So, uh, so really, I mean, really, I, I do feel like I am an old boomer. I, I literally am an old boomer. What? So people get together. Uh, well, tell me more about this cosplay culture. It's just a way for people. It's another way for people to express themselves, right? Cosplay is a way for us to dress up and emulate our heroes or these characters that we are familiar with or love. If you can emulate these characters that you see yourself in, in the real world, it's just a way for you to connect with like these things that make you feel more like you, right? It's a place for you to just, it's cosplay is a time for you to be comfortable dressing up as someone that you would like to be in, you know, another fictional world in the real world. For me, I love dressing up as a Jedi because I yeah. wish I was a Jedi all the time. <laughs> so cool. what was the most recent costume you wore in an educational talk? Now, obviously, it was before COVID. <laughs> um, let's see. Actually, I've been doing a few like easy cosplays for our Fossil Friday chat show that we do every Friday on, um, on our live stream. I think the last one I did was I actually did like a sort of Mandalorian cosplay because I won a Mandalorian helmet from an online contest from Miss Riot wow. Designs. And so I won that. So I wore the helmet on our live stream show. <laughs> and so that's what I was doing. Were you but, cradling Baby Yoda? <laughs> no, I didn't get one yet. I'm going to actually get one pretty soon because I pre-ordered it this time. But now, um, do you, Wait, do you know what, what genus is Yoda? Is, um, oh, you, I, I think he's a primate or is no. he... Yeah. So first of all, it's not Baby Yoda. It's the child. Whatever. And then we don't know what species they are, whether Yoda, oh. Yaddle, um, or the child. We don't know what their species, we don't know their planet of origin. All known uh, members of their species are Force-sensitive, but we don't know if yes. all of the species are Force-sensitive. Yes. So there's a yeah. lot to know about them. That is good, my son. Yes. <laughs> so... So Gabe, where does, where does the science come into cosplay? How do you connect those two? Basically, whenever we talk about any kind of pop culture thing, there's, there's always a little bit of science in it. Either it's directly inspired by science or there's a science connection there. So what we do is we bridge those connections between the pop culture stories and the science stories behind them. So take, for example, when we do like our Galactic Archive, that's our Star Wars inspired pop-up museum. Uh, what we do is we dress up as Jedi or Star Wars characters, usually me as a Jedi, from the Grand Galactic Archive because that's what I would be. And we, t we use real fossil specimens and we use them as proxies for the creatures in a galaxy far, far away. And the goal is to get people to realize how our real world, our real animals, our real evolutionary pathways and environments inspired these really cool fictional settings and how 
there's a little bit of truth to all of these quote legends. We talk about Hoth, right? There's the Tauntauns. The Tauntauns have these really wide set noses and dense fur to keep them warm in the cold temperatures of Hoth. Ray, Ray a Tauntaun is what Luke was writing when he got uh, attacked by the snow monster. And then that's the oh. creature that Han Solo opened up the stomach with his lightsaber <laughs> to shove Luke's frozen hands in the warm guts to save him. Wow, okay. That's a Tauntaun. Tauntaun, yep. thank you. Boomer. But if you if you look at like the physiology of a Tauntaun, they have a lot of traits that are inspired by real animals, like bighorn sheep. Like bighorn sheep have very wide set noses to help warm the air before they breathe in. Um, and so there's an inspiration from an actual animal adapted to cold environments to a fictional animal adapted to a cold environment. And those Would that be are... called comparative science fiction anatomy? Yeah, sure. Wait. I just had, this is going to tie it all together. All right, Gabe, when you look at Jar Jar Binks, yep. what do you see? <laughs> Jar Jar Binks is a mix of amphibious and reptilian creatures. There's definitely hadrosaur inspiration from there. And that's because Tara Whitlatch, the creature designer for episode one, is very heavily inspired by paleontology and is a wonderful anatomist and uh, creature designer. But wait, man, there is a Desmo that looks just like Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> is there? Cornwallius. Cornwallius, you know, yeah, it's called very it, elongated. It is pretty, it's Jar Jar Banks, man. What's the name of this Desmo so we can look it up? Cornwallius. Cornwallius, that's just, just that's the Google search term? That's the, yeah, well, put, pretty much. But Desmo, you'll find Cornwallius, uh, Cornwall, but it's from British Columbia, I believe, or there are there's some California specimens. I don't, I don't recall right now if there's any California specimens. He has a beautiful skull from Oregon that uh, Doug Emlong dug up, and it's at the Smithsonian. It's in the back. Describe room. it. If you didn't and know I... Jar Jar Binks, describe this Desmo Cornwallius face. So, like, again, take, like, something that's like a hippo's face and stretch it out to, like, maybe twice as long. And so it's, like, it's got the eyes up, set up top, a very long, thin snout that kind of like a duck like a bill yeah kind of like a bill but it's not a duck bill it's 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 just got a very elongated rostrum with whiskers mouth and, and lips. lips and yeah and little little tusks at the end little tusks like all desmos but hey i'm sorry gabe i, I did derail you you said that there was uh uh the star wars uh person that worked in the creature was a dinosaur freak of some sort uh then look at hadrosaurs terrell whitlatch she's the creature designer for episode one and she designed like uh, Jar Jar Binks and like the Kadu and all those creatures you see on Naboo and she's a wonderful creature designer and artist and she's a really good anatomist. There's always a bigger fish. The Sando Aqua Monster. What is it called? The Sando Aqua Monster. It lives, it lives in the trenches is, of Naboo. That's one of my favorite scenes where this huge thing comes and grabs their, their underwater spaceship and then a giant thing. It almost looks like a uh, an isopod kind of Thing. Oh, that's the, that's, that's not, that's the, is it Colo Clawfish? Oh no, Opie Fish. <laughs> the Colo Clawfish is the second one with the weird like graspers in its mouth that looks like an, an eel almost. Right, right. Uh, I just uh, love the imagination behind those films. You guys have left me in the dust here, man. I'm way behind. <laughs> You're going to well, have to rewatch the Liam Neeson uh, episode one. It's well, actually like, a pretty good one. Yeah, I love all, I love all Star Wars. I won't get into that too much, but like, <laughs> if you look at like a lot of those creatures again, they have inspirations from the real world, bits and pieces of real animals. And so, if we can make those connections with the real animals, people can start to think critically about 
what they see in a fictional world and use those critical thinking skills in the real world and when it comes to science and of other everyday decisions if they can find the science in their everyday and think critically about it that hopefully will cause them to make better decisions for not just themselves but for the world in general and that's where kind of cosplay for science comes in that's awesome how you use storytelling science fiction in conjunction with science and you make it fun you make it interesting to understand and learn about I, that that's what we need that yeah. is so what we need it for us it's a big part of our mission because you know I work at the ALF Museum, which is also on a high school, and I've done educational programs for a while. And one of the things that makes me the saddest is when I hear someone that says, like, science isn't really for me. And then, like, in my head, I'm like, yeah, it is. You just don't realize where the science is <laughs> in your life. And so if we can make, again, those connections to where they can find the interest in science, it may not, it's not necessarily, like, the hard science, but, like, if somebody loves, like, I don't know, like, an anime, like, Full Metal Alchemist, alchemy is originally chemistry. They can find those connections and realize, oh, maybe I do like chemistry. I just don't like it in the form that's presented to me all the time. And if we make that, uh, like, a level of accessibility and relatability, then maybe their interest to other sciences and like making scientific decisions and science-minded decisions will become easier and help guide again to make quote better decisions for things. Gabe, what's amazing is I ask every guest on Paleo Nerds a question, and I and I started off by saying that science is under attack and people are using opinion instead of facts. And the question I ask every guest is how do we educate people that science is fact and opinion isn't and how do you propagate that and you've already <laughs> given me the answer and i'm just blown away you're doing it now and i don't have to ask the question because it's what you do thank you my pleasure <laughs> Let me ask you this, Gabe. We love Desmos. I love Desmostilians, the Paleo Paradox. I'm liking them more and more. Yes. I think Dave is kind of coming around. I'm coming around. He's coming around. What happened to our beloved creatures, man? Why are there no, there are no Desmos. They have no descendants on the planet anywhere. Just people who love them like you and I. But what happened to them, man? So there's the great question. <laughs> That's what we're trying to figure out. Desmosilians just go extinct, like at the end of the Miocene, like 15 to 10 million years ago, and they just start to decline, and all of a sudden they're gone. And That's you know, a big range of years, though. Five million years? Yeah, so, you know, there's some evidence of Desmostilian kind of like a little bit later, like at the 10 million mark, but those might be reworked material, um, so that age range extension might not be... Like rework material you mean strata that has somehow got mixed in with mm -hmm. older strata something that you know older strata that got like eroded and then deposited in a younger layer and then you know so we find the fossil that may not necessarily be from that time period but in the end you know desmosilians disappear like at the end of the miocene and the reason is like at that same time lots of other marine mammal groups are disappearing like different walruses different types of pinnipeds are going are disappearing different types of whales are disappearing because that's a period of climate change at the end of the miocene it's a period of of cooling you know a lot of the seagrass beds are disappearing and so you know the hypothesis for me is like if desmostilians are losing their environment and they can't adapt because they're so specialized to eating these seagrass beds 
and other types of aquatic plants, when these aquatic grazing lands disappear, so will the Desmostillians. There's nowhere really else for them to adapt to from there. So the Miocene transitions to the Pliocene. Mm -hmm. What marks, what geologic event marks that boundary? You know, I am actually not sure what the <laughs> specific event is. Well, you go from Miocene to Pliocene. It's M to P, right? So yeah. it's, anyways. It's, yeah, it's, but that's really the me... start of humanity. That's the start. That's no, 3.5 no, million years ago. Dude, yeah. No, Pleistocene, not Pliocene. Dude. No, Pliocene is at 3.5 million. Okay. Isn't it? <laughs> is it? Okay, we have to get our little chronometers out. While he's going there. I was close. I just had the numbers switched around. The Pliocene Epoch is the geologic time scale that extends from 5.333 million years ago to 2.5 million years ago. And doesn't it sound like I'm talking in some great hall of a museum somewhere? I'd always thought that, you know, sea cows are thought to have replaced our beloved Desmostylians, that they outgrazed them. But the thing that I was wondering about too, Gabe, is that there's no modern day marine mammal, at least in the Pacific, that's feeding on things like kelp and seagrass. In like parts of Asia and Australia, there's still the dugong, but it's the dugong dugong is the only species left of this once very huge family of marine grazers. And so there's only one left. And so they're kind of like this remnant that's group yeah. of uh, marine grazers. So Okay, there we are. Miocene, Pliocene. 5.3 million. I said, I said 3.5 right. million. So it's a, humans don't really show up. Homo sapiens, our group. Oh no, that's what's real late. Later. But but hominids later. show up five million years ago. We have tools five million years ago. Yeah, Gabe, you say you're a, you confess you are a fellow paleo nerd, right? <laughs> yeah. And Dave and I claim to be paleo nerds. What exactly is a nerd and how is it different than being a, a geek or a dweeb or a dork? I know there's a lot of internet discussion on this. And, you know, when I was a kid, I was just trying to remember there were no terms for, I mean, maybe bookworm was way back in the Pleistocene when I was a kid. But I don't, there was never a term like nerd or, or geek dork. or dork. But what, what's the difference and, and why should we be proud of being a paleo nerd? So the way I kind of learned them is nerds make the stuff geeks love. <laughs> I love it. So the paleo like nerds, that. the paleo nerds, you know, we're the ones who are, we're, you know, they're all passionate, right? There's no, I don't want to diminish anyone's passion and love for something. But the way I learned these terms is that the nerds are like the paleo nerds. We're the ones who are deeply ingrained in, in the research and also the science communication side of things. Well, the geeks are the ones who take in the information that the nerds make, and we can all share it together, but not they're not necessarily creating parts of things, like things for people to enjoy, right? They're just, they're taking in the thing. They're the, consum they're the consumers. Yeah, right? <laughs> dork is a mean term. It's yeah. mean. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, dork, literally, if you look up the where the word comes from it means, means whale penis yep that was what we RC. loved in elementary school <laughs> <laughs> so actually as a kid gabe were you a nerd i would say i was pretty much a paleo geek when i was a kid because i had all the toys or as many toys as i could have like from dinosaur stuff that was i loved me. visiting the la brea tar pits that I was loved. my that was my paleo nerd place i would my dad took me to the la brea tar pits as well so that yeah. was my thing 
I'm from, you know, I grew up in like Los Angeles and Orange County. So my parents and family took me there all the time when I was a kid. That's kind of like my yeah. home museum, basically. So yeah, I, I visit them all the time. But I really, you know, as a kid, I'm not doing much. If Maybe if you can count me explaining to all my cousins and family about every single fact I learned about dinosaurs, that might make me a, a nerd at that point. But That is so cool. So Gabe, if you could travel back in time, what time period would you go back to and what would you want to see? Oh, deep down selfishly i want to just see desmostillions because i want to know i want to get as many answers as i can if i can get into a tardis right now and go <laughs> go back and find desmostillions and get a camera i would just record make my own silly little documentary about them and come back and be like here i know everything about them it's done but another part of me another small petty part of me wants to go back and see dinosaurs and like really put to end the debate of feathers or not on some dinosaurs <laughs> Just because as an educator at a museum with a lot of dinosaurs, we get this question a lot and I love answering it. But also at the same time, I have to be very cautious and be like, this is what the evidence tells us. And then sometimes I will get very passionate guests who will argue with me. And that's totally fine. I'm there to talk as a teacher. I can engage in debate. But sometimes there's a petty part of me that just wants to be like, look, stop talking to me and go away. Get away, kid, you bother me. <laughs> so you're saying non-scientist people start arguing with you? That's totally fine because based on what your knowledge base is, having a debate and questioning things is totally fine. We want to encourage people to not take everything on face value and just accept it. Even if something is fact, you should question your source and try to come to a conclusion on your own using really good inquiry-based question skills, right? That's totally fine. But when you come at me and start yelling at me and telling me how I'm wrong, that's a whole nother question. What do you do at the Raymond Alf Museum and what is the Raymond Alf Museum all about? What is, what's the story about? It's a quiet little museum tucked away in the hills of California somewhere, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's what we like to call ourselves. We're the little museum up on a hill. Like I said before, we're the only accredited museum on a high school campus. So that means we get to do a lot of really cool work with our students. We have a whole curriculum dedicated to paleontology where um, students can even participate in research. Um, we have high school students who have presented at national conferences and even published papers before they graduate and go on to college. And that's wow. super cool. And I am so jealous sometimes um, that I didn't get to go to school here. But also, I don't think I would have done very well. I took a Google virtual tour of the museum. And one of the things I saw was a giant crocodile skull. Yeah, a Purusaurus skull. So you were a co-author on a paper about crocodilians in America, in California? Yeah, um, I was a co-author with my colleague Michelle Barboza and my advisor Jim Parham. And we looked at the history of crocodilians through California, starting at the very early Paleocene and the Golar Formation with crocodilians all the way down to the latest crocodilians at the end of the Miocene or Pliocene. So you could get chomped on in Santa Monica. <laughs> Back in the day, probably, yeah. I would stay away from them. My master's thesis looked at animals from uh, this bone bed in Southern California, and we had a lot of crocodilians from there. Wow, very cool. Hey, you know, one of my favorite things about the Raymond Alf Museum, besides the cool stuff of the collection, is uh, the beautiful uh, mosaic out front, and it's a peccary. Yep. And... It's a peccary on fire. <laughs> what? Got flames. It's like a flaming peccary over the door. And I think everything just generally looks cooler with flames. You put flames <laughs> on it, it's cool. 
What's up with the flame and peccary on, on the museum entrance there? The peccary is a reference to our founder, Ray Alf. So when Ray Alf started here at the web schools, he started as a biology teacher. Uh, he's got a really cool history, too. Um, he started, he was born in China to missionary parents to start off with. Hmm. And then he tried to um, get into the Olympics as a runner. And unfortunately, he didn't make it. And after that, he started teaching biology here at the web schools. And from there, that started his lifelong passion for paleontology because he would go out to the Barstow Desert uh, out here in California. And when he went out with his first group of students in 1936, this legend goes is that one <laughs> of the students slipped down a hill and tore his pants on something. Ray Alf went back to look at it and it turned out to be the skull of a brand new species of peccary. Um, and that started his lifelong passion and fascination with paleontology <laughs> and teaching as well. He's the one who started this whole museum and teaching high school students about paleontology. The collection there was basically students have been collecting. Oh, work, yeah. Uh, this, so that's what you guys are showing or basically what the high school students over the, the decades have accumulated there at the Raymond Alf Museum, right? Yeah, I'd say like about 90% of our collection were collected by high school students on our, quote, wow. peccary trips, named after <laughs> that very first trip with, with Raya Health. so cool so what is your favorite fossil moment man you, you like to go digging what is is there a life-changing or just one moment out in the field fossil that you found kind of blew your mind or um, in the back of a collection room yeah well for sure the back of a collection room is that very first desmostillion that i got to publish a paper on because you know that specimen helped me become the paleontologist i am today and you know, working on that taught me a lot of what it means to be a scientist and the responsibility of a scientist as well and science communicator. And so, you know, that specimen really set off a chain of events for me that led me to where I am today. So that's a very, very important specimen for me. But like when it comes to the field and like a wow moment, when I was in Peru for a, a peccary trip with our museum, we were out in the desert and I was walking around and then I helped find one of these really cool dolphin skulls and jacket it. And for me, that was the coolest thing ever because I was like, here I am in Peru, things that, you know, read about, you know, just as a, as an early paleontologist and there's this beautiful dolphin skull um, right below me and I got to help jacket it. And it was just something that I never actually thought I'd be doing and just sitting there, just, I, there's pictures of me just smiling the whole time. I'm putting, making this jacket and I, there's a silly little picture of me where like my grin is huge and I've got my hands covered in plaster. I look like a hot mess, but I was just so happy <laughs> that I got to do that and have that wonderful opportunity and experience. And I was so grateful that I got to do that. And that's a moment that will always stick in my mind. The dolphin from the desert? Well, back then it was like an ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is, that's kind of a cool idea that, and you know, hey, Gabe, when I uh, met you, I took a portrait of you with that life-changing fossil. <laughs> So uh, we will have that on our website for sure, man. So, yeah. And that's a beautiful story, how that, that fossil changed your life, man. It's very cool. Yeah. Paleo really changed my life for the better. Gabe, this Amen. is awesome. Uh, really, really enjoyed talking to you. And I got to say, I'm a convert. I want to dig in and find more Desmo, Desmo yes. stuff. Wait a minute. I'm not a Desmophiliac yet, but um, and there Ray is holding up a bronze Desmo. 
That is this so one, cool. This is Unalaska Stylus Tomade from Alaska. Easy for Gabe, you to say. Gabe, don't you want this? Look <laughs> at I it. do want it. <laughs> <laughs> we can maybe get our buddy Gary Staub to make you another one. This is the one that was found in Alaska, a really big uh, You'll desk. have to uh, take a photo of that and put it on Gabe's uh, webpage on our paleonerds.com. <laughs> yeah, and I'll see if I can get Gary to give you one of these too. We'll see. I would probably so. cry if I got that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Hey, Gabe, this has been really cool. Thanks. And, uh, you know, uh, Dave and I are happy to be on one of your Fossil Fridays. If you yes, want that would be, be awesome. Okay, cool. Yeah. Hey, you back. And where do we tell our listeners to find your Fossil Friday? So, yeah, if you want to see our Fossil Friday show, uh, it's on uh, the ALF Museum Facebook page. You can also uh, find information on www.alfmuseum.org. Um, and we're on all the social medias. You can connect them on there. And also, you know, if you want to learn more about Cosplay for Science, you can find us on cosplayforscience.com. Oh, Fantastic. Cool. If you want to find me on Instagram, though, I'm at Paleo Paradox. <laughs> Paleo right. Paradox. Yeah. Cool. cool. Historic, we don't know. <laughs> Gabe, thanks for your time. And uh, we're going to come down. And when this is all over, we have another museum that we're going to roam the collections. And you're going to yes. be our tour guide, Gabe. Happy to. Yeah. Wait, are you a Paleo nerd? obviously. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had fun. Well, you did it. You got me. I am now a Desmo. Yeah. Well, almost a Desmo. Yeah, almost. But I think they're really cool. That and, and if you Google the teeth of these things, they really, they look like some sort of huge, like if you were to cut a jawbreaker, remember those candies? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they have, they're, they're absolutely amazing. They do look like sushi rolls. Sushi rolls or little six packs of beer, I think. Yeah. You know? So they're kind of cool. But yeah, the very word Desmos stylus means a group of pillars. So actually, oh. that's what that actually means, oh. Desmos stylus. So yeah, no, you came around. Oh, I got to say, when he uh, time traveled back, I was right there with him. That'd be you, where I want to go. crying or burping again? <laughs> no, I was crying, man. I was just picturing those herds of desmos swimming in the surf oh man and, and southern california all the way all the way over to japan was covered with desmos what yeah. a what a vision and people don't know about them so yeah. thanks for uh, indulging me dave i knew i'd bring you around because you did and how do they know there were like hundreds of animals or 50 animals or because you know you see that picture recently of the walruses on that alaska island there were tens of thousands of walruses actually one of the sections we were talking about the alaskan desmos that they were found unalaska stylus they actually found a whole family of them so adults oh. and juveniles so they know they were all packed in together and i'm betting there's lots of deposits in japan and, and down in california showing that they're probably herd animals and i think a lot of marine mammals especially along the coast will would they just bunch up it's kind of a protective thing remember Megalodon was swimming oh, around at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Oh, that's a Desmo would be a Megalodon lunch, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, I actually have a little drawing I've done of that. Desmo's being snacked on by Megalodon. Oh, let's so, put that up on our webpage for for Gabe. It'll be there for sure. I never thought I would connect Star Wars Jedi with <laughs> Paleo Nerds. That was a really fun show, man. It's really yeah. fun. And you know what? I'm not gonna say, but we have some heavy hitters coming up. Oh, Heavy hitters in the world of paleontology. Indeed, yeah. we do on topics. I'm talking, I've got some of their books on my coffee table. I have many of their books. Yes, we got heavy hitters. Yeah.
get all kinds, all flavors. Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to sign off from uh, Ojai, California, where the temperature was a balmy 110 degrees yesterday. Oh, man. I'm signing off from beautiful, rainy Ketchikan, Alaska, where it is constantly 54 degrees. <laughs> Forever and ever. See you, Ray. See you, Ned. Thank you for listening to Paleo Nerds. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about what you heard today, check out our website, paleonerds.com. You'll find tons of pictures and links, including photographic evidence that today's guests and your hosts have been paleo nerds for a long, long time. Again, that's paleonerds.com. Thanks for listening. I'm a paleo-